Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week, I am stoked to release a talk from our recent Micromobility America conference that we hosted in the Bay Area in mid-September. This is one of the most popular panels and one of my favorite of the event, the Raising Money in Micromobility for Software VC. The panel was run by my conference co-host, Julia Thane Demondant, and featured a slew of the top mobility investors and incubators in the space. I love this panel because it covered all manner of topics from funding to government regulation, total addressable market, and more, all while being fun and engaging. We're going to be releasing a few of these talks on the podcast over the next few weeks. If you're interested in seeing them as videos, a number of them are up on the Micromobility Industries YouTube channel as well, which I will link to in the show notes. Thanks so much to Julia and our panelists, Avra, Olaf, Sam, and Alex. And here they are. Let's go. Hey, Celeste, I see you. <laughs> uh, anybody here from Asia coming in from... Any, hey, wonderful. Welcome, welcome. Lovely to have you all here. Any places that I've... Australasia, the rest of Australia, New Zealand. Yes. Hey, Dan, lovely to see you. All right. Anybody else? Any other places that I've completely... Europe, right. Yeah, sorry. Oh, we would like to forget you guys down in New Zealand sometimes, I think. But uh, yeah. Hey, look. It's wonderful to have you all here. This next session, I'm incredibly excited about. Julia Thane Demordant from uh, Rocky Mountain Institute is going to be leading a conversation about mobility and clean tech funding and how to tap those mobility funds. I think it's an incredibly important area and topic. One of the things that we've seen in micromobility has been the uh, you know as as these businesses have been built. Uh, sometimes we haven't had a lot of attention from mobility and, and clean tech, and I think there's real opportunities here. So I'm incredibly excited for the team that Julia's put together, uh, and I think it's going to be an incredible conversation. So with that, I'm going to welcome Julia up on stage, and she can do the intros with her team. Everybody, <laughs> day two, you know how it goes. Um, <laughs> I am so excited to be able to moderate this panel today of investors. We're going to be talking about harnessing clean tech and mobility funds for micromobility. So I have Avra from Elemental, I have Alex from LA Cleantech Incubator, I have Sam from Mobility Fund, and I have Olaf from Red Blue. And I've told they need no introductions because at a conference, everybody always knows who the investors are and has already read their bios. So with that, we're actually going to dispense with any introductions at all, and I'm going to dive right into some questions. Uh, and where I really want to start out with is climate tech. So Alex, Avra, there's been an explosion of climate tech funding uh, in the past year. And just to frame this conversation with a couple of numbers, according to PwC, 6,000 investors funded 3,000 plus climate tech startups last year to the tune of $87.5 billion. Mobility and transport investments were 58 billion of that, or two thirds of the funding. And funding for micromobility companies, you wanna guess, how much was it? Two billion. Two billion? Yeah, two billion. Two billion is actually right. Y'all know your stuff. So, <laughs> but uh, in comparison, low greenhouse gas uh, on-road transport was twenty billion dollars. Yeah. So, Avro, I want to start with you because we've seen firms like Elemental invest in low GHG on-road transport. 
Y'all have done weave grid, lots of EV charging infrastructure. What's up, Avra? Like, when are you going to invest in micromobility? Why are you in, why are you not? Like, why do you think that not as much funding has gone into micromobility companies? It's a great question. Hello, everyone. Thanks for convening this panel. Um, one of my favorite topics. So at Elemental, we invest in climate technologies among a number of sectors, one of which is transportation. And actually, 26 of our 130 portfolio companies are transportation companies. Um, I want to make sure my feedback's okay. Uh, you can all hear me, right? Okay, perfect. And actually, we do invest in micromobility. We've invested in a number, and we were early investors and made some bets earlier than other VC uh, you know, funders. So we swiftly uh, remix um, Numina, which is a sensor company, Hawaii bike share. So we were early avid investors in micromobility. And we see the opportunity of micromobility to continue to push the envelope and bring decarbonized cities and decarbonized transportation. What I'll say is that there are certainly some industries that are really hard to decarbonize, like shipping and aviation, that we're also interested in. So it's not about you know, investing in one versus the other. We're looking at the whole spectrum and the whole pie. And there's still an opportunity for investment for you know, companies that are pushing the envelope in terms of form factor and business model and, you know, underlying technologies around the infrastructure and data foundation on which the entire micromobility industry relies. So we're very much into it. You know, check us out. Think about, think about whether you might fit with our cohort. Interesting. Alex, I'm going to pitch the same question to you, but slightly differently. I'm wondering, what do you think is the opportunity for entrepreneurs who are building in this space? You know, micromobility entrepreneurs trying to get climate tech funding. And where do you think geographically those opportunities are? Yeah. Um, well, great. Pleasure to be here, Julia, and excited to talk about this topic. Similarly to Elemental, um, transportation represents like about a third of what we incubate and invest in. And we do do that in micromobility. Eli EV, uh, you know, other micromobility companies. Um, and I think where the opportunity is, though, is, right, like we take a look at a broad swath of clean tech, transportation, clean energy and, and circular economy. One of the things we're definitely looking for, though, is how seriously and how quantified that climate impact mm -hmm. is. Yeah. It's something we expect people to be really smart on when they apply. Yeah. We refine their logic as they go, yeah. and we make sure that by the time they graduate, they have an impeccable story on climate yeah. impact. And I guess what I would say is one of their, where I see a gap is when we talk to micromobility companies, there's a lot more who you know, might not be familiar with the crane tool or say, you know, or some other tool that's in, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's, if, if you're going to be in the chasing clean tech fund space, you're going to want to make sure you're not just got one slide that talks about your GHG impact, although you want that. You want to make sure that you can substantiate that slide with some sort of third party methodology where you say, we've used some sort of third party, and some of these tools are open source free, so it's not as if it costs you money. But what the investor is looking for is, have you really thought critically about this? Or are you just using shortcuts and just like, throwing numbers uh, left and right, or have you actually engaged with a third-party research tool to really start quantifying how your specific product in your specific use case drives real impacts and thought about, you know, sort of also um, uh, induced demand issues where you might, you know, have people switch out from walking to microbiology, yeah. things like yeah, that, right? We want to see that you've already put that thinking in. And so that's where I think one of the big opportunities is, is actually for folks in this space to really get familiar with, oh yeah, when I'm going to go after clean tech funding, I'm going to engage in really thinking through, you know, what that third party research tool is, et cetera. Um, where the funding is, actually, you know, since COVID, I think it's actually totally 
opened up the world. You know, it doesn't really matter so much where you're based and where the investor's based. But what I would say as you think about clean tech is, is think about in clean tech world, there's actually like a bunch of different funders, you know, equity, some debt, and then government grants as well. And I would think about that full, full stack, not just go after venture capital. Because there's, there's, I think there's a missed opportunity actually for some, some micro-ability uh, startups to go after actually government funding you know, in the form of grants, whatever. Did you want to get in on this? <laughs> no, I, to- I totally agree. You know, the mixed capital stack and the approach to um, build, building a, a funding source that comes from different places, I think is absolutely right. I think what we're seeing is there's, you know, record num- a record amount of legislation and funding going into clean technologies from the public sector. Yeah. Obviously, the federal government is a big source, but we're seeing state action that's driving a lot of funding opportunities. And so I think to the industry thinking about ways to sort of harness that um, those funding sources, it's incredibly exciting. It's a really exciting time to be in this industry. And at the same time, substantiation is across the board going to be required for anyone even making statements, publicly traded companies making statements about their climate impact. So looking to the substantiation and the methodologies will basically, I think, also drive the industry to maybe a better place where telling a convincing story about the public good will then, I think, reinforce investment in the industry. So the sort of rising tide will sort of float the boat of micromobility. And it's interesting because in climate tech, I mean, you know, obviously you have to quantify emissions benefits, right? And secondarily, you have to look at what air quality impacts are going to be, especially in the transport space. And that's why, in, to a certain extent, it's easier to tell the story for aviation and shipping and trucking. You can see <laughs> what it means, what the difference is, even just in the air quality itself. But that's on the climate tech side. And I want to pivot actually to the mobility tech side because I think there's a different story that needs to be told. I'm saying this. Maybe it's totally, I'm just making shit up. But, you know, you tell me. Like, it seems like there needs to be a different story told around affordability and equity and uh, the consumer experience. So Sam and Olaf, I know you're both in mobility uh, funding. Olaf, yes. Uh, (laughs) But we've not seen um, much of the uh, general mobility funding translate to micro-mobility, especially in software. And Olaf, I want to have you take a step back first and and tell us, like, what counts as micro-mobility software? What are we really talking about when we say uh, micro-mobility software? And how does that definition translate to where companies should look for funding? Yeah, so I think the the first thing about micro-mobility and mobility in general is there's always a physical layer, and then there's a digital layer. And I think a lot of how the space has exploded is by combining the two, having digitally defined hardware assets. Um, so you can't really separate out fully the software um, from the hardware, but I think what makes these assets interesting, which you've uh, was at least enabled uh, shared services like uh, scooter sharing startups, et cetera, is through that connectivity layer and the software layer that then most importantly creates a marketplace. So I think the software side of it comes back to aggregation, a marketplace layer, uh, et cetera. And I think that's the really interesting aspect of this industry. Um, Taking another step back, I mean, what are we really competing against? What's the enemy? The enemy is cars, uh, these kinds of dumb assets that use like 4% of the time. Um, And the underutilization and the efficiency of cars is quite staggering because it's not just that they're sitting around occupying valuable real estate in cities most of the time, dripping fluids onto the pavement, rusting, et cetera. But even when they're in use, they're wasting incredible amounts of energy. 
um, because there are four empty seats and an empty trunk, because a car is designed to take your family to a picnic in a park, but most of the time you're not going to a picnic in a park. You're going to work, you're going shopping, etc. Um, so there's, there's just this incredible waste across the industry. Now we've got this great idea on the governmental level. I mean, you, you mentioned environmental or ESG type investments, etc. But we've got this really dumb idea that what we really need to do in order to fix the climate problem that we have um, is that we should recreate cars just with a different powertrain. So you've got what I call a battery sponge in the Hummer EV, but also Teslas are, are battery sponges. They're sucking up lithium and, and other raw materials that are essential for manufacturing vehicles. Mike, the, the founder of Rad Power Bikes, yesterday was telling me you can make 380 Rad Power Bikes from the lithium and other raw materials in a Hummer EV. So that's really the inefficiency. So going back to your, your question around software and what's exciting about the space, and I think the real opportunity is to um, create these kinds of marketplaces which are trip-specific. So you get these trip marketplaces, whether it's a scooter, whether it's delivery coming to you, e-bikes for delivery. We invested in Zuma, for instance, very early on. Um, that's a vehicle that's optimized for a particular use case, and then that vehicle is um, much lighter, much more efficient, et cetera. And so these, these kind of quantitative st studies that you, you're pointing to that startups at early stages have to point to seem besides the point in the sense that this whole industry is way more efficient than what we have as an incumbent layer, and yet we're putting these bars and hurdles in front of companies that they have to in order to, to create a better solution. So I think the software layer is the really exciting part here uh, because it changes the business model and creates efficiencies, but it's also, we're kind of blind to yeah. this because we're so used to the incumbent reality of cars just occupying yeah. massive yeah. amounts of space and creating inefficiencies. And, and you were talking uh, the other day, Olaf, about the, the double standard that we have for like regulating cars and like talking about how annoying, you know, my, like micromobility is relative to cars. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit because that really struck me. Well, you go to Santa Monica, the birthplace of Bird, which is, I think, I mean, it's this kind of Cambrian explosion moment in the history. Because if you, like you said, a billion, two billion dollars has gone into the space. How much of that went into Bird and Lime and then well, we the had European? 300 million that went into Rad Power, right? That's what we heard yesterday. So, yeah. This is the thing when you yeah. have these statistics, like, yeah. I remember when I was in this stuff since like 2014, like it was always like, oh, mobility funding is, is growing. There's hundreds of millions, like Uber raised yeah. hundreds of millions yeah. and then Didi raised hundreds yeah. of millions. Yeah. And all the other startups fighting over scraps, right? Because you get like a $1 million C check that doesn't even move the needle on the aggregation of them. It's really the big companies that are scaling. And most investors are scared, right? They're only going to invest in something by the time that it's matured. So you go to Santa Monica, birthplace of a bird, and you try and take a bird or lime scooter, it's the most horrible experience. It's so tragic just to like uh, go there and you get on the scooter and then you're suddenly going, you know, 20, 10 miles an hour and you're like stuttering along and sure. then you're like, damn it, I'm fucking going to walk. Yeah. And then you, you try and end the ride and you can't even end the ride because now you're in a geofence yeah. zone. Yeah. And then you look around and there's like all the space, cars whizzing along whatever speed they want, parking wherever the hell they yeah. want. Yeah. And I'm in this environmentally clean, low impact, All right. you know, yeah. very I, efficient technology. And, I want and to push back against a couple of things you said. So first of all, who in the audience owns a car? Just like raise your hands. Okay, how many of you who take them? Who in the them? audience doesn't own a car? Okay, and mm. also interesting. Who of you who owns a car takes your car to a picnic in the park? 
One person. Okay. <laughs> so number one, cars were not designed for picnics and parks. But uh, that aside, no, people, um, <laughs> people, people who like cars for a very general use case. I, I get, I get what you mean. But um, the other thing that I, I wanted to push back on is, uh, well, two things actually. One, the um, supposition that uh, we have dumb cars and not smart cars, because I think you know certainly as we're talking about vehicle electrification, one of the things that you get as part of vehicle electrification is more software in cars. But the second thing is that software in micromobility is important to the extent that it changes the business model. And that seems to be important for shared micromobility, but not for privately owned micromobility. So Sam, I want you to talk about this a little bit, because it looks like you're going to disagree with me. And so go ahead and disagree with me, but tell me why software is important to privately owned micromobility as well. I mean, like, so, I mean, first of all, like, just to not basically directly answer your question. Are you a politician? Or are you an investor? Yeah. You're not supposed to say that. Oh, you're supposed to act like I'm not answering my questions this entire panel. Yeah. So I think I think look, if if you're a founder and you're going to talk to a venture capitalist now, it's it's really difficult because if you mention anything about micromobility, the first thing they're going to do is say, "Is this like Lime?" And then you've lost already, right? I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like it's Wayne really, is here. Yeah. Like it's really it's really it's really tricky. Um, and even more nuanced investors, like I would say, like I have a little bit deeper understanding, given my background, about what's going on with micromobility, and I am still kind of skeptical when I'm when I'm hearing kind of uh, proposals. So that's a major challenge, and I think like the opportunity in you know a lot of investors' minds right now in micromobility is really going to be more about like solving the problem in, ter in terms of the sharing models. It's going to be more about solving the the problems in like economics, right? Because there's this like you know basically bias that the the businesses are not profitable, and it's going to it's unclear how you make them profitable. And so if you come in with solutions that are optimizing in that direction, then that's kind of interesting, right? Because it's like a big potential, but we don't know how everyone's going to make money doing that. So if you have a solution in that regard, that could be interesting. With respect to the, the, the private ownership models, I mean, certainly the, the software could be helpful from a maybe user experience perspective, but that's maybe more of a nice to have. The question is like, what's a fundamental like roadblock to that in terms of widespread adoption? And I think like there are lots of opportunities with software as it relates to how one sort of finances and manages assets as mm. they relate to large scale, quote yeah. unquote, privately owned fleets that are just kind of nascent right now. And, and that's certainly something to kind of keep an eye out. But I just want to like emphasize, like, I think it's really, really tricky to go to a classic venture capital firm right now and pitch them on, you know, we have the next vehicle type, right? And, um, and I will say without naming names, like, you know, you talk to, to investors in Rivian and that were successful on paper so far in terms of um, outcomes. and you know, one example that I had recently, they said, we would never invest in a company like Rivian again because mm. we got lucky. Like, mm. we could have invested in the 40 other companies that were trying to do something like that, and we just got lucky, and, you know, we, we made off with a lot of money, but we would never do that again. We are going into the value chain investing now. And what they mean by that is, like, not the end consumer brands, but all the suppliers that go, that go into basically supporting that, the, supporting those vehicle types in the future. And I think, you know, if I were to give direct advice, I think like from a funding source perspective, based on the conversations that I'm having right now in the market, kind of globally, I think going after automotive suppliers um, who are faced with electrification, uh, the tra electrification transformation right now might be probably the most optimal source for capital for startups right now, um, because I'm hearing a lot of demand in the market for them saying they're, they're looking to invest in new types of um, EV form factors or big mm. suppliers to companies that have EV yeah. form factors yeah. and they might be the best funding source. So literally, and I'm not just talking about like, I'm not talking about Bosch, I'm talking about like literally go online and type in automotive supplier and find the global list and there's companies in um, India, Thailand, Vietnam, 
South America. I mean, literally all over the world, there's a yeah. complex kind of global automotive supply chain, and those companies might be the best source of capital right now because venture capitalists right now are super biased against mm -hmm. micromobility. I don't, see, I don't see that changing anytime soon. Yeah. But, I mean, I don't know, Olaf, if you have any. Yeah, and Avery, I want you to get on this. Like, what does it take to get an investor not biased against micromobility? That's a great, that's a great question, and I think it's about sort of like proof, right? The proof and the substantiation, I think, is really important. Like, what is the actual impact here, and what is the what is the transformative aspect? And the, your your note about software, I want to double tap, right? So, I think the question around software and personal versus shared can actually be reframed. And I think the point about assets is really important. But so are sort of the sort of urban infrastructure that we're designing for the non-car city, right? So. That's where the software and the data layer can play a really important role. There's room for a lot of new technologies there and new innovation around the streetscape, right? You know, curbside optimization, parking, charging, things that can be for a vehicle type regardless of whether it's shared or personal. And I think there's a lot of room for innovation on the sort of data layer, which I think of as the software layer. Yeah. I want to just, as somebody who's car-free in LA, I want to say that, and actually, like, just a number of government agencies reached out and been like, who has a high-performing e-wallet that we can use as we trial universal yeah. basic mobility, whatever yeah. else? Like, as somebody who's car-free, I'm incredibly disappointed by almost every single app I use on the reliability, and I'm talking about whether it's Google and, yeah. and, and, and Waze and, you know, whatever, or the transit app, et cetera, both from a finding out where assets are that I can use sure. for the trip economy and payment for them, I've mostly just given up at this point. Like in LA, I don't. I have not downloaded the super pedestrian link yeah. because I'm too tired of so many different apps. I'm just like, when is the layer above this that allows me yeah. to actually engage yeah. in the trip economy yep. from a software perspective in a reliable, meaningful, friction-free way? It doesn't exist yet. Now, is that strictly just micromobility? No, it's not. But if you believe what we all believe about the statistics of trip length and whatever else, yeah. it should be very much biased towards micromobility. Yeah. Yeah. But again, isn't this speaking to kind of shared micromobility options rather than privately owned sure, micromobility okay, options? There's huge software opportunities in privately owned. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll have touched on one. I'll touch on another, which is battery state of health and battery intelligence. Yeah. These are distributed energy resources, which are going to become very important in certain use cases going forward. And yet we've got pretty minimal intelligence about where these distributed energy resources sit, what their second life could be, how we could harness them in a sort of energy situation. So that's like another data layer you could lie, use with uh, privately on my Yeah, yeah. So, um, Olaf, I'm going to pitch this back over to you. Like, Horace talks about micromobility vehicles as being smartphones on wheels. And by that thesis, we're still kind of in the dumb phone area, era, rather, uh, or could be still in the dumb phone era. So I would love to hear what you think the iPhone of micromobility is going to be. Like, what is, what's the, the killer app? Like, to Alex's point, that there isn't really a killer app right now. Like, if you look out into the future, however many years, what do you think the iPhone of micromobility is going to be? I mean, isn't it the iPhone? I mean... <laughs> the iPhone is the iPhone of micromobility? <laughs> in the sense of, I mean, the power of an iPhone is that it's an interface that you carry in your pocket that you can then, it's your key and your lever to the world. I mean, your frustration that you're expressing about, you know, multimodal apps and tools like that is that it isn't good, but your, your natural interface that you're trying to use to navigate that world is a smartphone, and that's, that's the lens through which you see the world. It's also where we've created all these trip marketplaces on, you know, Uber, for instance, is enabled, but you couldn't have Uber without the smartphone, but a whole lot of other things. I think what's really interesting, though, is the potential to integrate that digital ecosystem that you have in your pocket, you see it happening in cars. Basically, Apple CarPlay is just 
eviscerating every attempt that every comic has ever made. You talked about cars as, as smart and software, but comic is suck at software. I mean, <laughs> only Tesla can kind of do software and you can see really cool stuff. But I think the power of Tesla, and I've seen things, um, yeah, like Wheel, for instance, has the ability through software to redefine the product in really interesting ways. So you have an interface through your smartphone, but the ability to then manipulate hardware, the hardware layer, kind of the, the power of the iPhone is the kind of seamless blending of the physical and the digital, and how you get that experience. I think that's, that's a really interesting angle for micromobility. I think it's particularly appealing on the, you've been pushing on the privately owned side. I'm a big proponent of shared services because I think you really get real efficiencies, and if we're thinking about climate and efficiency, that's. Yeah. But from the personal perspective, it's still much lighter vehicle. Yeah. Locking it up, especially scooters. Bicycles have a big theft problem, but scooters don't so much because you've got proprietary parts, software integration, and then this kind of digital unlock ability, management of your battery, etc., all, all through software. So you can have a really good experience uh, as a customer as a result of that. It seems like the uh, risk of theft has come up a lot in this conference. I've never had so many conversations about the risk of theft of micromobility options, and maybe something we need to consider for the next conference. I know there's a couple of companies here who are trying to create um, micromobility devices that are theft-proof, and certainly there's a software aspect of that as well as a hardware aspect of that. And just getting back to that, yeah. uh, we were talking about the capital stack earlier. Yeah. I do think that's what's kept a lot of debt folks out of this marketplace. Mm -hmm having confidence in the future cash streams associated with an individual asset, how portable it is, how easy it is to be to be stolen. Yeah. Um, and if, if we can make some progress on that front, I do think it might open up some incremental debt stream yeah. dollars. Yeah. I want to get back to a point that you made, Sam, about the automotive supply chain and around manufacturing and even around software related to manufacturing and assembly of micromobility. Have any of you made investments in, in companies in that space? Like in the in the manufacture the parts components, we looked at yeah. parts components companies. I think it's hard to sell, it's hard to invest in suppliers. Just to push back and point a little Why bit. Why is it harder to invest in suppliers? Because you, firstly, you need an end market, so you're dependent on the end market actually being large enough. And the the way investors love to talk about this is selling right? yeah. pick uh, pickaxes in a gold rush, etc. But you need the gold rush first, so you're dependent on uh, on that. The other thing is, if you have another supplier that you're competing against, then your end customers will second source you. So they'll put, put you against the other player and then you'll squeeze down the margins as a result of it. So you have to have a really unique component in the value chain in order to have that differentiation. So the model we've seen work relatively well, for instance with Zumo, uh, is vertical integration where you control a large amount of your value chain, which allows you to do that software hardware integration in a really interesting way because you're in control, I mean, the Apple kind of, the classic kind of cliche Apple kind of model. Um, and then you also have more differentiation, plus you have the relationship with the customer. So if you control that whole value chain, you're often able to capture more margin as, as a result of it. So I, I think if you're, you know, a unique battery chemistry and you're supplying into the value chain, you can make a lot of money because nobody else has the same technology. But the moment you start having commoditization of that technology within the supply chain and real optionality on the customer side, then you're going to get aggregated and your margins are going to shrink to mm -hmm. close to zero. I'll share another challenge on that front, which is both hardware and software. As you look at the supply chain for automobiles, for example, we have a decently robust supply chain for zero emission in the US. We're far behind China, but we're sort of beginning to catch up. We don't have a competent supply chain for micromobility in the US 
or North America in general. And that prevents them, like, and, and by the way, we have some pretty big geopolitical tensions with, with China. So if you're really banking on the supply chain aspect, you've got to be faced with that geopolitical risk in China. And so there's a hardware and supply chain opportunity to build some of that in the U.S., which then I think would allow more software-related, you know, on the, on the manufacturing side. Because otherwise, you might be investing in a business that becomes a stranded asset on the other side of the Great Wall uh, in China. <laughs> I mean, quite really. I mean, literally. Literally, yeah. Micromobility is the tech attack on the cottage industry of biking. I mean, that's basically, if you look at the biking value chain, it's a total cottage industry on, two, on both sides of the marketplace. So there's the manufacturing and then there's the distribution. You've got the same with automotive, et cetera. Manufacturing is a cottage industry for the most part. I mean, we've seen with, with companies going to the space. You need to go somewhere, source all these components. Most of them are the same, not necessarily. Like, why is a bike often as expensive or close to as expensive as a car, even though it's a way worse product, effectively? So there's a whole shift that micromobility is forced in this industry in order to grow up, get real suppliers, real value in. And then on the distribution side, I mean, I don't know if you spend time in bike shops, but they're pretty crappy experiences, and it's very ununified. Yeah. Um, because Absolutely, it's yeah. all mom and pop stores, and it's yeah. all passionate enthusiasts, yeah, but they're not good business people. So like, you don't have a good distribution yeah. layer, and you don't have a good manufacturing yeah. layer. And so a lot of what has to do, what's happened in this industry is a maturation sure. um, in, in both sides of the marketplace. Yeah, no, I, I, would, I would agree with that partly. And I struggle. So my background is partly in transportation policy. I was in city government, and uh, I'll talk about it in a, a, like an hour or two. But um, one of the things that you see city governments doing right now is they're setting up um, subsidies, incentive programs, voucher programs for purchasing of micromobility options, but only if you purchase them at local bike shops. And I think there's this tension in the industry right now between direct-to-consumer brands, you know, that you want to be able to purchase it on the internet and get it shipped to your home or apartment, uh, and then cities especially, uh, needing to have some local jobs to show for the uh, investments that they've made, especially with, with um, government funding. And I want to take our, uh, the next part of our conversation there and talk about a, a little bit about transportation policy. So LA <laughs> arguably made some good decisions around how we regulate micromobility and some decisions that might, might not have been the best. We might have changed our decisions uh, had we known about it. Um, and I'd like to start actually with you, Avra, especially because of your background at Jump and with shared uh, micromobility. How do you think that policy has changed the playing field for micromobility compared to other modes in cities? A great question. A lot to unpack. Um, <laughs> Feel free to do it at every level. Yeah, Global, right? yeah, national. <laughs> I could talk for an hour. I won't do that to you. Um, so at Elemental, we focus a lot on where innovation meets implementation. So how do you actually implement projects in the ground? And that's true for policy. It's all about how things are implemented. Um, and I think we saw with MDS, while you know, an interesting structure was actually quite hard in terms of implementation. So we always you know, would say at Jump, it's about the outcome. So designing policy that drives outcome instead of prescribes means. Like, you have to do it this way. It's actually you're trying to solve for social outcomes. But even that is really challenging. And the implementation of data infrastructure, data standards, was actually quite hard and would fall sometimes, I think, on it was easier for more sophisticated companies with larger data teams to metabolize information and work on data accuracy. And so the, the fact of the matter is, is that policy 
can do a lot to unblock scale, to um, accelerate the deployment of much-needed climate technologies. It can create markets. It can fund new technologies. It can level the playing field in terms of creating industry or, you know, level standards. That's not just on data. That's on, you know, bike certifications and requirements that are, you know, kind of dizzying if you really look too closely at them and um, make it hard to expand. But they can also create an unlevel playing field because it's hard to build a business model if the regulations are shifting all the time and if the implementation of those regulations are actually, you know, fall on, on organizations and companies differently because of the sort of, you know, good intent, but the how it actually happens in the world is, is much more challenging. Yeah. 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 Just like a really kind of high level, like without getting into details, like based on some of the stuff that Olaf was saying earlier about like the relative negative impacts of large vehicles, ICE or even potentially EV on society. Like it's kind of crazy that like the majority of the conversations about micromobility are talking about how to regulate it and control it as opposed to how to subsidize it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like just like how does that make any sense? You know? Like. And so, um, yeah, we should we should be thinking more in those terms potentially. So, like making it more attractive. I think that's the failure of everybody in this room, like, you know, us included, right? Like, we can lick our wounds, look at the Inflation Reduction Act and go, oh, we didn't get a $7,500 tax credit per, you know, like, like yeah. passenger vehicles, Scott. Policy is driven by appropriations in a way, and appropriations drives policy. Like, we, you know, we lean into how do we, how do we create pilots that actually drive that policy change? So we've, we've run two pilots in the last year that have actually resulted in federal legislation, one that's an active bill in Congress, one that was actually part of the infrastructure bill, which was around recognizing the role that curb management plays in driving GHG reduction. So we, we took you know, appropriations dollars, ran a pilot, brought those results back to policymakers, and were like, this has a very real impact, and that resulted in federal legislation. So like the Inflation Reduction Act is not a total loss for this group. There's $3 billion on page 704 for community mobility plans. So whether you're in private... 704? Yeah. Page 704? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so there's a lot of money in there for you to actually design a very smart pilot that proves some of the benefits we've been talking about and then using that to drive, okay, next time around, there's going to be a tax credit, whatever else. So like tap, especially if you're in shared mobility, find a way to tap into those grant dollars to prove something really beyond a shadow of a doubt that then becomes that arguing point for why we do need, we do need to subsidize it, but nobody's doing a great job of proving it yet in a way that people go, okay. Do we have time? But I, but yeah, I, go ahead. <laughs> and you can, I mean, we can whine that, like, they should already know that, but, like, okay, like, maybe, we, we got to prove. I, mean, look, I, I think policy in the micro-mobility space is a total travesty. Uh, I think we've completely hindered and hobbled ourselves. Regulators have hobbled this. Never, never has there been such a big, broad approach to people getting around. And they're the best people going around, right? Like it's it's low, it's it's electric transportation with very little impact. Cars have shoved everybody into the sidewalks, so everybody's squabbling over the sidewalk. But like the problem is the cars, it's not the, the scooters. And yet regulators only have tools to regulate the, the micro-mobility. So what have they done? They've imposed all sorts of restrictions. You can only park here in this little zone, you can only go at this speed in this place. Like how is an industry to tolerate this bullshit? Like there really needs to be a pushback on this because Micromobility is not fun anymore for the most part uh, in many different places because regulators have, and, and we can say, oh, it's so very nice, it's a, no, on page 811, there's a, yeah. but like, there's a $7,500 tax credit on every single electric vehicle that's using up massive amount of resources, et cetera, and there's nothing going to you 
people being somebody who uses an e-bike, right? Like that thing should be free and you should get two more for free yeah. for that kind of money, right? Like there should be one for the whole family. Give everyone a free e-bike for yeah. less money. What the hell are we doing? <laughs> like, and why do we just sit around and act like this is normal? Like it's so completely ass backward. Like the situation that we're in. And, like when are, when, are, when are we going to be able to articulate this more clearly, yeah. put it in front of regulators yeah. and, and get them to tra change this bullshit? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but it's political because yeah. it's like, oh, well, yeah, but, if, but if, 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 if most like of them were then. manufactured in the U.S., then it would be a totally yeah. different story. Then we've got, we've yes. got this, like, it would be a totally different story. Yeah. Yeah. I like, think that's a really important point, though, and keep going. No, I mean, <laughs> that's all I have to say. I don't, I don't know <laughs> enough about it to go into detail. because the IRA creates all these incentives to manufacture in the U.S. They could create the same policy that you have to manufacture this and the whole value chain would immediately yeah. shift because you've got subsidization. Yeah. That's happening with the automotive industry. Yeah. That's not the excuse. The excuse is cars are the way of America and people can't see beyond them and they need to be educated. And this is the room full of people that are most woke <laughs> on this point and we but need to we need mean, get out there and do that Here's a question more. for the panel. Is, I was going to ask yeah. if you think it's similar in other places. Like, what about Europe? Europe is better. I mean, there, there are places with proven out models do where, like, you have better. Yeah. No, <laughs> we don't do that like, here. Yeah. No, in, terms of, in terms of, I mean, look, the e-bike is really interesting for America because American cities are built around cars and they're very spread out. So e-bikes are a good solution. Amsterdam is built around bicycles. That's why it's yeah. quite compact. But American cities can't really have micromobility in the form of un, unpowered vehicles. You need powered vehicles. But e-bikes are a solution in many different places. You need to build a lot of infrastructure so that people feel safe because people are dying at way higher rates than they, they, they died before because cars have gotten fatter and heavier and more obese yeah, as yeah, they've been subsidized yeah. more. So, so there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done in order to shift this. But, I mean, that, there's a pretty clear opportunity now that you've sure. got electrified mobility to, to change how cities are, are run. Yeah. But I think uh, I want to challenge this panel because we're uh, almost out of time. I, I want to channel this, challenge this panel and also maybe the audience to a question slash comment, which is like, how instead of competing against cars, can micromobility hold hands with cars? I think especially in the automotive industry and when you're talking about lobbying, when you're talking about advocacy, like especially in the U.S., there's such an entrenched uh, advocacy lobbying coalition from the automotive industry. And we had some automotive companies that invested in micromobility and then divested from micromobility. So if we're going to move into that like next iteration of both government funding and then uh, private funding for micromobility, I think there's going to have to be a hand-holding situation. Like, I don't think it can be a battle of like David and Goliath and in this situation, micromobility is actually not David. You know, like we're Goliath and we're going to get defeated by David, who's automotive. Anyways. Um, the last thing yeah. to say is, like, how does, how does micromobility hold hands with, it, with itself? Yeah. And I think yeah. that's the first question. Yeah. Because the industry, at least the shared industry here, has and the shared operators have tried to do a trade association. You know, those get diluted. There's, like, no one can agree to the minimum standards. So I think the first question is actually how across form factor and use case and uh, business model type, shared versus private versus municipal. How do you how do you kind of think about coming together and painting the picture of the sort of city we all want to live in where we don't have the cars? And that would be my sort of call to action is think about that question yeah. and then hold hands with the car manufacturer. <laughs> yeah, it's like the equivalent of like whatever the car companies did in LA in what was it, like the 40s where they ripped up all the tram lines or something. Uh, I don't know. You probably know more about that than I do. But what's the equivalent of, what's the equivalent of ripping up, you know, the like micro-mobility industry lobbying the government, ripping up a bunch of roads and then putting in... We just paint well, bike lanes. Well, paint I, bike I think lanes. it's yeah. more about ripping up the roads to build in bike lanes. I think, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think safe infrastructure and then subsidization yeah. are the yeah. two yeah. things that yeah. are missing. And going back to the venture capital piece, I mean, one of the challenges is, and you touched on it, is the markets, the real market size. Like, like you really need to like do the math if you're an investor and figure out like how big is this really. 
Yeah. Like if I'm investing in a shared mobility like tool, and you're like, oh, this platform, like how many customers are there in the shared mobility space? And you do the math, it, like it doesn't pencil out as an the, investment. The, the, I mean, the, that's an issue. The, right? There's an unlevel playing field, which makes it really hard for investors to put capital in. I was having this conversation with Horace yesterday that like the real challenge for getting capital to come into the space is that if you put capital in, you might have a situation like Lime or Bird where your company looks like it's doing well and then it's going to be hampered because there are all these restrictions. So if you, if you suddenly have you know, a $1,000 subsidy going to micro-mobility vehicles that account for the positive externalities, suddenly this market would look dramatically different. Investors would be pouring money in, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah. So. Uh, we're over time, so I've got to ask one final question, though. Um, all right, I'm looking at him. He's, we're good. Uh, so I'm going to go straight down the line, but I'm going to start on that side and go this side. Um, so what are the coolest companies or services that you've seen in the micromobility space, software or otherwise, and why do you find it interesting? And let's do like two sentences, if you can distill it. Um, what is a cool company? So there's something I saw yesterday called Fragile, which is like a uh, software or a basically subscription hardware uh, operating system. And I think a lot of problems in these kinds of spaces, it's, it's like the pickaxes in the, in the gold rush, is about unlocking speed and allowing people to scale services. And what you want to do, at least on the business side, in order to hold hands, so to speak, is to avoid replication, reinventing the wheel every, every single time, and instead having you know, a solution that, that quickly solves and gets things to market. Right. Yeah, that's still my example, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, damn, I went first, and then like, ah, I can pick whatever <laughs> I want. Uh, um, no, no, I think like uh, one, uh, this is a plug. We have as a portfolio company. We have is uh, Trails in Israel. Maybe you've heard of them. Oh, you always pick Zuma. No. Yeah, <laughs> Zuma's cool. Love, love Zuma. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but uh, what's interesting about Trails is it's like a specialized navigation system for micromobility. And what I like about it is it's leveraging the infrastructure that's already there. It's trying to tell you what's the best, safest, most fun, uh, you know, uh, route that you could take in a city as it is today, right? And this is just acknowledging the fact that it's not optimal. And it's just trying to say, Google's going to tell you where the, the best way is to drive a car, but that's not necessarily the, yeah. the most fun, safest, and healthiest yeah you know, route you should take if you're riding a, a scooter, and, and this is what these guys do. And I think that's a really interesting, uh, you know, really interesting area. Great. Just one sentence. It was a travesty. I was in Amsterdam. I tried to use Google Maps for bike navigation, and it's like, oh, we don't have the city yet. Yeah. For bike, for Amsterdam? Cycle, for Amsterdam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, what the hell are you 100%. doing, Apple? What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it totally. I mean, this is exactly what, yeah, 100%, yeah. Trails, okay. Uh, I will take a company that's not in the Lacey portfolio and just see. I like what Alex Nesik at Drover is doing around really, look, acknowledging that in the shared micromobility space, it is the cities who are setting certain rules. And so if you live in that sandbox, um, acknowledging that the cities are going to be sort of setting signals around speed, around where the vehicle can be located, um, having the software and the connectivity to hardware to, to make that happen, I think, is just a necessary step then towards getting more scooters in those cities where they say this is going to be the model. Um, instead of picking a company, I think I'll just pick a theme. And I think that theme is around sort of like thinking about urban spaces, shared spaces, and creating universal solutions. I sort of mentioned this. This is my through line today. Um, you know, mentioned idea of like universal charging and parking solutions beyond form factor. And also technologies that go from one vehicle type to another or one type of, um, you know, one type of business model to another. So I think there's a lot of opportunity in that space. Great. We're getting played off. Yes. We're getting played off the stage. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the captive panel and the captive audience. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. I think you guys could have kept going for another hour. That was fantastic. Thank you so much. 